Greetings, folks, and welcome to episode 26 of the Far Beyond Metal podcast. I'm your host and spirit guide on this metal journey, Daniel Cordova. In this episode, Einar Solberg of the band Lepers discusses his first band, and I end the podcast with a track from Gershock. Before that, I speak with Jeff Waters, the guitarist, sometimes vocalist, and all-around mastermind of the legendary Canadian thrash band Annihilator. I've been a fan of Jeff for a long time, and frankly, getting him on the show has been a goal of mine for longer than I've even had the show. So forgive me if our chat is a little more fanboy than normal. Anyway, Annihilator probably perhaps best known for the songs Never Never Land, King of the Kill, and of course, Alice in Hell. However, with the next record, Jeff will have released 16 albums with a variety of musicians under the Annihilator umbrella. The latest, For the Demented, drops November 3rd, and from that album, here are some of Twisted Lobotomy before we jump in with Jeff Waters. far beyond metal that's that's me man how you doing today i i i gotta admit uh to be honest i'm cheating i'm looking at just a sheet of printouts <laughs> that's completely fair if it's uh it, i'm gonna cut out this part and make myself feel special in the final product like oh of course jeff water knows far beyond metal why wouldn't he <laughs> right on that's no, fair how are you this morning man afternoon whatever time it is say it, say it one more time how are you on this fine day oh not bad it's uh <clears throat> Kind of like a really, I'm just outside of Ottawa, Canada, so it's kind of more in the east, and it's a little bit, uh, one of these days of just teasing you that, you know, that winter's coming, but we're going to give you a nice day before we hit you with hell. You get the rough winters over yonder? Yeah, it's, it's really nice out today, but uh, you can feel winter's coming up here, you know, we get it pretty bad in the winter. Do you get a lot of fall, or is it just go like summer, winter, and then it's just ice hell? Yeah, I think the... You can feel the cold really getting in here by the end of November, and then you start snowfall in December, and then it goes really nasty. Brutal. All righty, well, uh, I could talk about weather all day, but instead, shall we talk about the new record, uh, For the Demented? Yeah, sure. Uh, if you were to pair For the Demented with a certain type of weather, what sort of weather would you pair it with? Poof. Hmm. Let me see. <laughs> Very <laughs> type of weather. I'm half kidding. I say pretty mixed up weather, that's for sure. I, I read somewhere that uh, you were trying to do the opposite of something you did with Suicide Society, which was uh, you felt too influenced by other bands. Uh, is is that accurate? 
Yeah, I think what, you know, with Annihilator, uh, I've had, like, the, back when I started, I was into, even before I started with Annihilator, my my sort of plethora, or no, no, what's the word, palette, or whatever the heck it was of music, was everything from hard rock to heavy metal, which back in when I was growing up, the heavy metal was Kiss, ACDC, and Van Halen. That's, that's like, they even called that heavy metal back then. So I had all these different types of influences, and I always put them under the category heavy metal and then uh you know the big four and the thrash stuff came along and then whoa this isn't heavy metal there's something else here and that was of course called thrash or speed and all this kind of stuff so i've had the like the ability to and no pressure from labels and and just sort of do my own thing and of just changing singers changing lineups changing styles under that heavy metal umbrella which is everything from ballads to you know, fast, thrashy stuff and all this kind of stuff. So I've, I've had the luxury, at least artistically, of just being able to do anything I want. Um, and, you know, I suffer if it's not something that some of our fans like. And, and again, it's great when we have, you know, doing a certain style or album that really, really works for their fans. So we have this up and down thing, which is really actually kind of cool. People seem to always be like, well, I don't know if I like this particular Annihilator album, but okay, we'll wait and see what Waters does in two years and uh, see if we like that one, you know? So it's, it's always kind of like I've had the ability to do what I wanted. So on, on the Suicide Society record, one of, uh, which was the 2015 one, the last one we did, uh, I basically just, I sort of took off a filter that I usually put on, which is my uh, fan of metal uh, part of, of, of me that uh, I let... Basically, if I was writing a riff, I wouldn't, I really would go, okay, well, that sounds a little Slayer-ish, you know, but then I like the riff, so let's keep it, you know? And so I, I did that. Essentially, I took the filter off that tells me, yeah, yeah, it does sound a little like Slayer, so you need to get rid of that and try to be a little bit more original, a little more your style kind of thing. And that was the album, I think, that really, I just, you know, you can hear clearly where a lot of these songs or riffs are coming from. And I just said, screw it, just do it if you like the riff do it now the the weird thing for us is our you know 99 percent of our or 95 percent of our what we've been doing for the last 25 years has been in europe and the record sold much better than the previous like three or four records so as much as i i kind of found that ironic because that was the one that was there was less waters slash annihilator and a little more of the influences obviously there that one did really well so after I did the last record, I said, screw it, I've got to go back to the office. I'm going to go back to the, basically from our demo days in the 80s, early, mid-80s, and right up until our first four records, um, which were four totally different types of metal records. Um, find out, not, not go back and, you know, try to recapture a record or a song or a style, but more like, why did people like that? Because those were our four biggest records, the first four. And... Uh, and the demo days were pretty popular back in the cassette trading days and all that. And really, it's because it was more of original, uh, you know, original way that I put together my influences. And uh, so that's what I did. I went back and just said, hey, let's get do the opposite. Let's get back. And whenever I, I directly hear an influence, try to just delete it, start again, do a different idea and try to come up with more of the, what, what we were kind of known, known for um, in the first four albums, for sure. Um, and that's, I brought somebody else in, a bass player in the band, Rich. I brought him in, too, to sort of steer me away from 
letting things on that were too far away from where I wanted to go and just keep me sort of on the path because he's an old school Annihilator fan from our basically I think he likes the the demo days in the fourth record I think it was so um, he was a good guy to come in there and instead of just sort of guiding me through him and I um, ended up really quickly writing all the music to the record so that was a really good thing I brought him in to keep me uh, focused on my new plan (laughs) (laughs) I also remember this is the first time you had somebody co-produce with you uh, with Rich what did he say to convince you to uh, kind of give him some reins well, I, you know, he wasn't expecting me to ask him to have any involvement in the record because technically he's, quote, just another hired bass player in the long list of, of guys that I'd hire over the years, right? And But Rich seemed more like uh, quite a knowledgeable guy with uh, sort of, like, he likes the sort of math metal, like Meshuggah and a lot of Scandinavian stuff from 10, 15 years ago where there was a lot of technical stuff and a lot of talent to play it, but it was kind of real mathematical um, and then he also likes the classic thrash and heavy metal stuff in the 80s so he was uh, when he was you know in high school he was like Megadeth Annihilator Slayer you know that kind of stuff uh, into that so he's a quiet guy and smart guy so I kind of picked him and said hey do you want to do this with me and um, he didn't produce the record but he, he produ- I basically gave him a co-production credit on the first part which was the writing uh, stage because I felt not only is he co-writing, he really is kind of helping guide me through what I'm going to end up doing, uh, be doing for the rest of the record when he leaves. Um, so we just wrote the we just wrote the music. It was easy. It was like just sitting down, and I would look at him and say, "What do you think of this?" And he would shake his head and go, "No," <laughs> or he'd go, "Yes." And the no's usually meant uh, he would maybe follow it up with uh, he'd look at me and go, "No Slayer," or "No." Hatfield or no Mustaine or no and it was like damn it I like that riff but yeah okay if it does sound a little too much like this band I like or this artist I like then uh, so that, that you know he really started pointing me it was kind of fun to do it that way because if you can imagine you're trying to do your own record and you've got somebody now over your shoulder that's telling you no that's just not water style that's Hetfield vibe or you know so he, he brought me back to the the kind of stuff that I was I guess got got our career going for, especially on the first four records. Did at any point did he look at you and say, "No, that's Annihilator. You've already done that." Oh yeah, there was lots of that too. Because look, when you're the main writer for so many years at this, um, I think it happens with most bands, uh, and especially in my case because um, it's you know it, behind the scenes has pretty much been a solo project since the first album was finished and. Uh, and then I'd hire guys for the studio and hire guys for the touring, which is weird, but that's just how I did it. Um, but it was, uh, I don't know, say the question again? Say that. Uh, did he ever point at you and say, that's an Annihilator riff? When you? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, yeah, sorry. I, I, I easily get sidetracked because I just yap too much, obviously. But, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's like sometimes you repeat yourself over the years. Sometimes if you're not as inspired as you you wish or that things just don't come together at that time when you're writing a record and you think it's working but later you, you look back and go damn I, I should have waited or rewritten this or so you start I guess kind of not intentionally but you can end up starting to copy riffs that you've done before and sometimes I will do a, a riff when I'm writing and go oh, I like that riff and then I realize oh no wonder you like it that was one on on one of your songs off your fourth album you know, like, which was, which is like 20 years ago, right? 23 years ago or something. So, um, yeah, it's occasionally you, you 
hopefully it's just unintentional that you sort of pull or steal from your old stuff or other musicians. Uh, but uh, it's good to have someone else in there, as I found out, do your fresh ears and, and keep you on track. Uh, since Annihilator's been your baby since the start, did you have any, have you, do you, sorry, do you have issue giving up control, like, to someone like Rich or anybody else? No, no, it was kind of like, um, like, when the band started back in, like, late 84, it was just me and a singer, John Bates, and we were just writing songs together, and then, of course, we had the dream as teenagers, like, let's start a band, uh, and, you know, he found a couple guys, and we would try to you know, get to rehearsals. And I found that I was like totally a hundred times more wanting to, to spend more time doing this, learning how people that we like, uh, write and play and live shows and listening to music and analyzing what, you know, why is this good? Why do we like these bands? And what is it, you know, how do you write a song basically? Um, and then when we did, a, I got to do the first album, um, Alice in Hell in 1989, that was the the idea. I I was I moved out to Vancouver a few years before that and said I'm going to put a band together and record this album and somehow I did that. Uh, but then I found right after the album came out, it was like a I think it was one of the biggest, if not the biggest, metal independent record of 1989 on an independent label. So it was an instant success, and that was weird because I was on literally starving, literally. For a few years before that, and then bang, you're on. You're doing all this stuff and getting all this attention and selling records. So, right at the end of that touring cycle, we were do, doing a tour with Testament in the states in '89, and our singer left the band before the end of the tour. To uh, and he told us to go back to his job, and we were all just in shock because we were touring with Testament. We just had our first album out. And it totally devastated me and, and a couple of the other guys, but it devastated me that it was so easy for, you know, for one person to stop everything and put the whole thing or the future of what you, you were just learning how to do and what you like to do in jeopardy. So that's at the end of 1989, when the singer left without telling us, that's when I decided um, that I was, I was not going to make this a band. This was going to be Waters with... Uh, and hire people to do the studio and try to hire a bass player and a guitar player for the uh, for the tours as well, you know? So it's a very strange way of doing it, but it turns out when I look back after all these years, it may have confused a lot of people, especially in North America, that, that haven't been able to follow us or, or don't know much about us. But it, uh, for the Europeans that are with us every year for 25 years, it, it's kind of normal. But it sure is not a normal way to have a, have a band, right? <laughs> <laughs> It's like a solo project behind the scenes, and it's a, a, a real band when you we go on tour because it's not the water show on tour. It's the uh, it's four guys just having a blast and getting along and having fun. Right. Uh, you, you've you've mentioned having a lot of success in Europe. Um, what what about you? Do you think doesn't quite hit as hard here in North America? Sorry, what about what? Uh, you you have a lot of hits in Europe, and you play there all the time. I don't think I've seen you on a bill stateside. Why, what about Annihilator do you think doesn't quite hit here? Yeah, I think it was Canada, my home country as well, um, North America in general. But what happened was we had a, we were out, our first record was actually released late in our beginning of our career. I mean, our first record came out in 89, but I'd had the band going in late 84, Um I wish I'd hurried up a little quicker than that, but uh, you know, when you look back, around 1992 is when 
literally in North America, um, record companies were sending out memos saying that uh, anything in any of the band's bios that says the word heavy metal, just drop them unless they're selling massive amounts of records. So it had to sort of, in 92, you had to sort of fit in with this, um, maybe the Pantera, uh, Pantera Biohazard Sepultura type of newer, hardcore-ish type of metal uh, in 92, or if you didn't fit into that kind of thing, then you were out of a job. And, and literally some labels were saying to their artists, unless you change the name of your band and, and sound more like this band, we have to drop you. And that's what happened to us. So I got out of the whole North American scene. Oh, I thought I was out of a complete career, but what happened is um, it kind of happened that way in Europe as well. It wasn't as bad as North America, but it, it was the same thing worldwide. This kind of music was just pushed to the underground when it was the third biggest type of music in the world and uh, in the 80s. Um, so literally after I got dropped from uh, the time Roadrunner Records, and I think Sony was with us too, um, I thought my career was done and, and Europe and Japan uh, said, no, we, we want to sign you guys. And we ended up having an even bigger record called King of the Kill. Um, in uh, Japan, it was like a, one of these ridiculous, freaky things where you're, the number one album in Japan was Bon Jovi and we were second. <laughs> you know, like it was like, what happened here? So I went from thinking my career was done and getting a real job of working in the studio and, and that kind of stuff. And I ended up within months just signing one of the biggest deals I've ever done and having success in Europe and Japan. And that kind of kept going to a point that had about 10 years downtime from 97 to 2007 where we still put out records and toured, but it wasn't like, you know, really big thing for us. And then since 2007, it's every album's been going up and up for us. So I tried to get back into Canada and the States around 2000 and I don't know what year, 2007, eight, nine, somewhere around there. And I, cause I'd noticed that now at that point, you know, there were, labels starting up and signing sort of traditional 80s type of thrash metal or speed metal and heavy metal and uh, mostly newer bands um, that were playing in that older school style and so I thought okay now is the time for me to try to get it back in and I was I was totally surprised but understandable my reaction the reaction from the labels in the states was pretty much well first of all you were never big here when you did have your three-year run from 89 to 91. Um, we did do well with our first couple of records in the States, but it wasn't like a huge Megadeth thing you know, or a big Slayer thing. Um, and then, uh, long story short, hey, you're an older band. You were never big here, so it's not a big comeback. And you, it's not basically it's not easy to rip you off on the contracts and give you a crappy deal because you you've been around enough and you don't want to sign a crappy deal. So I was stuck. I, I actually couldn't come back if I wanted to. So that was kind of the where I'd been at, and it was uh, pretty shitty because I know I got a lot of Canadian fans and, and uh, U.S. fans that that really want us to come and play, and especially I think if maybe we were out there, um, these new fans would pick up on it, but. We'll see what happens. We got back to Canada for the first time in uh, in a couple of decades, doing a full tour in June, and that was uh, went way beyond what we expected was going to happen. And we're going to come back again next year uh, because it went over so well. Now I just got to get the chance to get into the states and do the same thing if I'm lucky.
That was, of course, some of Alice in Hell from the Annihilator classic, Alice in Hell. I'll have more with Jeff Waters shortly, but first, this is my first band. Every musician has to start somewhere, and in this episode, Einar Solberg of the band Leprous discusses his heavy metal origins. My first band was called... Uh, it's tempting to say Leprous because it was actually almost my first band. Um, but it wasn't actually my first band. Um... My first band was called Don't Complain, <laughs> and it started uh, it started just like uh, a couple of months before Lepers, and that was my main band, uh, and it sounded like kind of uh, like uh, we played some covers of Nirvana, Rage Against the Machine. Sex Pistols, like whatever we managed to play, and we made a couple of own, own tunes. One of the songs was called "The Fuck the Ku Klux Klan." I remember. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and uh, yeah, that that was when I was fifteen. Uh, and then just like shortly after, Leper started. Were you on vocals for that as two. well? Yeah, I was vocals. Yeah, yeah, vocals. I hadn't started with keys actually back then. I was vocals. That was the first thing, and then I started needed something to compose with. <laughs> so hypothetically speaking, if somebody decided to do, go digging around the internet, could they find "Fuck the Ku Klux Klan" by you guys? <laughs> no. I know. Uh, Damn. I have I have a video of our very first concert, um, which was um, that was only covers. That was. Yeah, the songs, uh, and there was like one Radiohead song in there as well. Um, I, I I have it, but nobody else have it at the moment. Maybe we'll post it sometime. One day, and we just can all as a curiosity. I have a corpse paint and like uh, That's great uh, and a suit and uh, what's what's that hat called again? That like top, a top hat, top or, hat or fedora yeah, or something? Yeah, the top hat, the one, the the kind of eighteen. Uh, eight, like from the 1850s, uh, <laughs> kind of, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. So uh, the attitude was already there. From the Flame by Leprous from their album Molina. Leprous are currently touring Europe, and for dates, head to leprous.net. And if you want more of my chat with Einar Solberg, head to episode 23 of this very podcast. Now, before I wrap it up with Jeff Waters from Annihilator, here's some of the dagger from the Roadrunner United album. Jeff is a soloist on the track, fronted by Rob Flynn of Machine Head and Howard Jones of Then Kill Switch Engage, but now Light the Torch. This song alone is why I sought out Jeff's work.
So I personally first became introduced to Annihilator through the uh, Roadrunner United album and DVD. Uh, what was your yeah. What was your experience like playing that show and on that record with uh, Rob Flynn? Yeah, that was that was really the first experience that a lot of uh, anybody under thirty five had ever you know have heard of Annihilator or whoever that was. You know, uh, because some of the older school people that followed us with Alice in Hell and Never Neverland, the first two records they lost touch with us because we didn't tour, we didn't release albums for so long that even uh, some of the older school ones just, you know, went, oh, I guess they're done. Um, so, yeah, the, the, uh, that Roadrunner, I think it was, was it United or All-Star thing or whatever? Uh, United, yeah. That was, yeah, that was kind of a, a weird for me, too, because I went down to, to do the show that was done after that record was done where they had, uh, you know, all their, some of their artists uh, sort of head teams up, you know, Dino, Fear Factory, uh, you know, Rob Plan and all that, uh, they, you know, had a team and write a bunch of songs and record them. So I was asked to come down at the very last minute to do some solos and um, play the song Alice in Hell and a few things. And uh, I was pretty surprised because a lot of people didn't, of course, well, I wasn't surprised a lot of people didn't know me, but what was really a sort of life-changing thing for me in a good way was I, I went down to that show and they had rehearsals a day or two before in New York and... I was very nervous because, um, you know, playing in Europe with a lot of great bands and doing all the touring that we've been doing every year for so long, it was a different thing to get back into the States and go to New York for something like this with mostly U.S. musicians. So I thought, you know, you had Slipknot and all these these really cool bands and musicians there, um, and many of them, dozens of people, more than dozens, that I would go, holy cow, that's so-and-so, you know, like kind of a neat thing, right? Um, so I got into the dressing room on the warm-up day and uh, VIP catering lounge, or whatever they called it, and I went in to get a coffee, and I went, I realized, holy crap, look at all these, quote, famous people here. <laughs> you know, like, there's Scott Ian, there's so-and-so, right? Joey Jordison and Corey and the Trillium dudes and all these other people that I know do well with what they're doing. And I put my head down because I was nervous, grabbed a coffee, and I just thought I'd pour the coffee and get out of the room and go for a walk because it was too a little bit too nervous to be there and people were actually looking at me so I looked down and I'm like oh shit they're wondering who the fuck that is long story short by the time I poured the milk and sugar in my coffee and stirred the fucking thing I looked up to my right and I saw a small lineup forming with people that I knew and respected and they were actually lining up to introduce themselves and say hi and which Annihilator songs that they were listening to in high school for example and it was like I spent a half an hour shaking hands, talking to people, and I was like, holy crap. I mean, I went from thinking that nobody knew who I was here to all these nice compliments from people that I have admired for so long. And uh, that was a huge life-changing moment for me. That was one of those things where you kind of almost tear up in a way later thinking about it and go, wow, you know, even though we've been out in North America, uh, at least a lot of the musicians uh, knew about us. Yeah, I like you said under 35. I'm 29. I I bought that record just on a whim and I watched the DVD and saw you play the dagger solo. I'm like I got to find more of this fucking dude. And Oh I, yeah, yeah, I, that, for sure cuz that that would have been probably the first time you would have had a chance to even hear about it anyway, right? Yep. Uh, no, yeah, and then the internet comes in and even though the internet's there for anybody to discover bands around the world, it's still you still get bombarded with, uh, of course, with, with uh, you know, SiriusXM, all the, the web scenes, fanzines, shows, like everything, everything, right? You, you, you get it, and you're, 
the bands that aren't there touring and aren't there at all releasing records, it doesn't matter if the, the internet's there. The only way you're going to know they're there is if a friend says you have to check this out and here's their website and listen to their song. You know, there's just so much choice, so many choices of bands out there and 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 things to hear and see. So. I, I figured when the internet came in full force that maybe we would get picked up on, uh, and and you know no, it's it's just you can't take that for granted. You just gotta you gotta work your ass off in an area to get noticed, right? And uh, we just didn't. If you don't have the label support, it means you have to put your own money into getting down and touring in your own country or the states. And if we don't have a label supporting us. Um, we've actually had offers from at least, I'll say on record, at least two of the big four say, hey, Waters, why don't you get down here to the States and, and we'll bring you on tour? And because we play with some of those bands overseas all the time and we're at festivals or see them everywhere. And um, I'd be like, of course, uh, that's, that'd be an honor. Uh, and they would always say, you have to have a deal. There's no way that nobody, anybody's going to bring you down there unless you've got a deal. And uh, I just couldn't get labels interested. That's a that's a shame because I you know, I mean you, you're here on my show. I'm a fan, and I that sucks. Um, yeah, I mean I, again, I'm not blaming the yeah, team yeah. or the labels. The scene or the labels are blaming. There's a whole pile of reasons. I was also playing. I mean, I play traditional metal. I don't play all aggressive stuff, which has been a popular kind of metal for for a long time in the states, right? Stuff that's really like Lamb of God or you know stuff with really aggressive vibe and lyrics and, and sometimes singing or screaming we're we're a really weird band for new people to listen to because we one minute we got a love song and a ballad and an instrumental and the next minute we got a goofy song about craft dinner or food <laughs> and the next next minute we have uh, like a, a classic heavy metal type song or we got a, a thrash metal or a bit of a speed metal thing so it's hard to latch on and when you when you hear the name for the first time, you assume you know what kind of music that's going to be, and uh, you put it on. And if you put the wrong song on, or hit search and hit the wrong song, it's going to form an opinion real quick um, and go, "Hey, what the hell is that?" Alrighty, Jeff, I got uh, I got a couple more questions for you before I wrap up. Uh, just what did, what did you think of the uh, Cradle of Filth cover of Alice in Hell? Yeah, that was a that was. Uh, a, a, a freaking amazing surprise because I, I'd met Danny before uh, years ago, many years ago, and he, and then maybe once after, and he he said a few times and on Facebook once I think that he wanted to cover uh, the song, one of our songs, and specifically Alice in Hell because he said I don't hear people covering Annihilator songs even in Europe where we we've done very well, and um, he he just said. Uh, I said, oh, that'd be an honor for me if you did that, and it never happened, never happened with the solo project, like he said, and and then he finally calls me up months and months ago and says, well, guess what, I finally found a band that can play one of your songs. Nice. <laughs> and I was like, what? And he goes, well, that's why I haven't done any of your songs, is because there's always one or two people in the band that just can't pull it off, and I'm like, oh, that's, I guess that's a compliment, and he sent me the track and I was like, you know, expecting it to be, you know, Cradle of Filth for sure, 90% Cradle of Filth, 10% Annihilator. And regardless, I'm sure it was going to be good and, and that, but I had no idea how good and respectful that guy was of the actual music, not of me. And, you know, when you do a cover, you can do whatever the hell you want. That's It's your business. But he obviously spent a shitload of time to try to figure out how to do it 
a, a really great way. And boy, did he ever pull it off. Like, uh, we were all just like, I sent it to the, um, my co-writer of that song, John Bates, my first singer who, who wrote the song with me. And he was just like, he called me and said, holy shit, that's the first, uh, that's one of the best covers of any band ever. So we, we were just loving that. And we were, we were really honored that he not only covered the song, because that's cool, but the way he did it and the time he took to do it, um, in his words, the right way, um, and nailing it is just beyond an honor. That's just like awesome for us. Yeah, Danny Filth, like he gets a lot of flack for no reason really, but he knows how to cover a song. And when yeah, I read he was I mean, doing it, I was stoked. Yeah, he was. You know, I mean, who's the other band that does a lot of it? You know, Children of Bodom. They have they have fun. Yes, with absolutely. Covers. And and uh, covers are fun, and and sometimes it can take away from the band being serious, and and sometimes it helps, or sometimes it's just whatever. But. Yeah, when when uh, Danny and the, the guys and girls do covers, they're, they're usually <laughs> they're usually pretty damn good. Alrighty, well, thank you so much for talking to me today. Um, like, I'm really looking forward to the new record and everything Annihilator. Uh, right on. You have a good you rest. Know, of- thanks for t- thanks for taking the time, and maybe we'll actually get down there in 2018, hopefully. Like, I try and sneak Annihilator into things I can because uh, while it's not associated with the website, I also write for Metal Injection. And the new record, oh, yeah. the new record will be on like the the weekly roundup. Every time you guys have something, I try and push it out there because, like you said, you need the coverage and stuff like that to get here. And I'm trying to do my part. So, uh, just awesome. I appreciate that very much. Of Thank course, you man. So much. You have a good rest of your day. All right. Yeah. See you, Daniel. Bye bye. Later. For the Demented by Annihilator drops November 3rd via Silver Lining Music. For more Annihilator, head to facebook.com slash annihilatorband and annihilatormetal.com. If you're in Europe, catch them on the tour this winter with Testament and Death Angel. Now, I like to end each episode with a recommendation, and in this episode, I bring you Gershock. Gershock are an experimental metal band from the Bay Area. They're about to release their debut full-length album, Dark Matter, on December 1st. From that album, here is Undead Empire in its entirety.
Once again, Dark Matter drops December 1st from Gershock. For more on the band, head to facebook.com slash Gershock and head to gershock.bandcamp.com. That'll do it for episode 26 of Far Beyond Metal. If you're in a band and you want to be on the show, you can email me at farbeyondmetaldan at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter at Ovacor. That's O-V-A-C-O-R-D. You can like the show on Facebook, facebook.com slash farbeyondmetal. And as always, the theme song is Far Beyond Metal by the band Strapping Young Lad from their album The New Black, courtesy of Century Media Records and Devin Townsend himself. Thank you for listening. Catbox Production.